It's a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Michael D from the University of Oxford today, our second, third University of Oxford uh, speaker of the series, and his final one today, unfortunately. Um, but we've got a fitting finish, certainly. Michael is a, a Leverhulme Early Career Research Fellow and also a St. Edmund Hall Junior Research Fellow, so greedy. Um, he's been at Oxford since 2005, I think I'm saying, so he did his PhD there then another postdoc, and now he's on his second postdoc there. Initially educated in chemistry in the University of Wellington, and then went to, as if that side isn't dark enough, went fully to the dark side and worked in the city of London for several years before seeing the light and coming to archaeology. He's one of these brave revolutionaries who's uh, changing our views on chronology and global chronology through Bayesian statistics, uh, particularly in Egypt, which we're going to hear about today. So, over to you. Thank you very much. Um, so, yeah, today I'm going to talk about some work that I've been doing over the course of the last six or seven years, really. Um, and essentially it's just coincidence that uh, I managed to get the funding for the second half of, of a project I'd already done, which was on the origins of the Egyptian state. I managed to just get the funding more recently for um, the possibility that a climatic event caused the fall of the uh, first Egyptian state. And I'll talk about all these things as I go along, so um, hopefully it'll be pretty clear. <clears throat> these are the four things I'd like to cover. Um, I, I want to give an introduction to radiocarbon dating, which is kind of what I do, uh, and Bayesian modeling, uh, which is the technique we use to try to get as much precision as we can from our radiocarbon dates. Uh, I guess that's pretty familiar to people here in part of uh, Alistair Whittle and Alex Bayliss have written some seminal texts on this subject, uh, and I know you're probably all relatively familiar with it, but I I'd like to just touch on some of the basics again. And then introduce Egypt, the history of Egypt, for those who are perhaps not familiar, and then talk a little bit about the project I did dating the rise of the first Egyptian state, and then the one I'm on currently, which is dealing with why and when it collapsed. Uh, and that one I've only done a year on, so that'll be only about sort of five or ten minutes at the end of the talk, uh, and there'll be no major conclusions yet on that. So, okay, radiocarbon dating and Bayesian modelling. <clears throat> so this is es essentially the radiocarbon cycle. Uh, what happens is radiocarbon is a radioactive isotope of carbon, and it's generated in the upper atmosphere by the inter uh, interaction of intergalactic cosmic rays with the outer reaches of the atmosphere <coughs> creates a carbon-14 from actually from nitrogen-14. What happens soon after that is the carbon is oxidized to CO2 and at that point and from then on radiocarbon is really indistinguishable from ordinary carbon. So you have carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that has this um, radioactive carbon-14 uh, isotope present within it and then you have all the other types of carbon 13 carbon dioxide and carbon 12, the most common uh, <coughs> form of carbon dioxide, all spread out gaseous uh, coverage all throughout the atmosphere and, uh, and relatively evenly distributed as well. So the radiocarbon enters the biosphere, the plants and, and, and animals, uh, via photosynthesis. The plants photosynthesize carbon dioxide and some of that contains this uh, radiocarbon. I sometimes give this talk. I gave this talk once in, in, in Norway, and the senior professor over there said afterwards he really enjoyed it, and he thought it was one of the best uh, um, 
discussions he'd had on this subject. And I said, what did you enjoy the most? He said, the smi smiley fish you had. <laughs> and this is actually the only thing I don't sort of go into. <laughs> this part heads off in another direction. This complicates radiocarbon through the oceans and the cycle of uh, uh, the depletion of radiocarbon in, in the oceans. What I'm more interested in uh, in Egypt is dealing with terrestrial sources. So what happens is once the carbon dioxide's in the plants, the plants are then eaten by the animals, and we eat the animals, or we eat the plants. So essentially all of us are made up of uh, um, carbon, some of which contains radiocarbon. In fact, we can think of ourselves and all living things in a simplistic way <clears throat> as being relatively in equilibrium with the atmosphere in terms of the concentration of radiocarbon in our bodies and in the skeletons of, of animals and plants throughout uh, whilst they're living. However, what happens when we die, you see, is that this uptake and this exchange with the atmosphere ceases to continue. And so the composition, the proportion of radiocarbon in our uh, uh, tissue uh, declines due to radioactive decay. Um, at one, if you think of your hair, your hair grows all the time, you know, every year growing and building in from your diet uh, um, radiocarbon. But then when we find hair in an archaeological site in Egypt, for example, to pick it up. The amount of radiocarbon left in that sample is much depleted due to the well-known um, uh, exponential decay curve of uh, radiocarbon. So, for example, this is where you have the famous half-life. <clears throat> An equivalent amount of time in years for every uh, um, halving of the proportion of radiocarbon in the tissue. So here we are. This is my schematic thing. I've got the... Uh, three different types of carbon in this growing tree. I've got the most plentiful one, which is carbon-12. I've got radioactive carbon-14, and I've got carbon-13, which is another stabilized tip. The tree dies, timba, boom. And what happens is that over time, the, the radiocarbon disappears. So all we need to do at any moment in time is measure the proportion in the sample of radiocarbon relative to the amount of stable carbon, and then we can work out how long it's been since the thing died. That's how radiocarbon dating works, and it would have all been very simple if that had been true all the time. The problem is, is that <clears throat> this atmospheric amount, this amount of radiocarbon in the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, is unfortunately changing. It moves up and down, um, and it has done through the millennia. They didn't know that when they designed the method in the beginning. A uh, gentleman who discovered it was called Willard Libby. He actually suspected it might be the case, um, but uh, when he got his Nobel Prize, um, that wasn't yet established that <clears throat> there were these variations in the concentration of radiocarbon in the atmosphere. So what we have to do is go back through time and get snapshots of how much radiocarbon there was in the atmosphere for any given year. And the only way we can do that is measure the um, radiocarbon back through tree rings and so on, and actually plate bars, for which we know already the age. And usually we know the age because we just count you know, the number of tree rings back in time. And there's a dendrochronology back as far as the sort of beginning of the Holocene, at least <clears throat> much further now, too. So not for every single calendar year, but for tree rings of absolutely known age, we already know what the radiocarbon concentration w would have been in the atmosphere at that time. And so <clears throat> one has actually a fluctuating concentration in radiocarbon going back through time. This is probably all old hat that I'm sort of rushing through it. Um, <clears throat> so what we have to do now 
convert our measurement, we make our radiocarbon measurement relative to stable carbon. We have to convert it into real time <coughs> by um, bouncing it essentially off this curve. We make a measurement in the laboratory. Uh, we usually quote it to 95% because we're estimating a proportion, uh, 14 to 12, <coughs> and we're never going to get that absolutely right, particularly because radiocarbon is only present in one million millionth the proportion of, of 12. So there's a million million times as much uh, carbon-12 as there is uh, carbon-14. So <coughs> we make an estimate. We get a 95% uh, range where that, um, what that ratio is. We convert it back via this record through time of how much radiocarbon was in the atmosphere. And what often happens, because this is irregular, is you get <coughs> a date range here, which is kind of funny-shaped. Um, let me show you. Here's a real one. <coughs> this is the, obviously the same thing, the measurement. This is the true curve. And here's, this is the radiocarbon date. Uh, so there's still a lot of confusion uh, out there about what a radiocarbon date is. It's one of these things. It's on the absolute time scale. The, thing, uh, the units has to say cal somewhere in it for it to be a true date as you would know it on the sort of AD, BC timescale. And what this represents is the probability that any one of these individual calendar years is actually the age of your sample. So this is actually the highest, and this is quite low. <coughs> However, <coughs> what we tend to do is quote this range here that incorporates the most probable 95% of the years. So this is the 95% range. And within here, we can be 95% confident we've got the calendar year that is responsible for that sample. It, it sounds relatively straightforward when you put it like that, but we've confused people by using um, funny units. I mean, uh, radiocarbon years, BP, some people know that uh, this means before present. Some people know that the present for radiocarbon is 1950. So they'll do things like 1950 minus, for an example, like this, 3,000, and they'll get a number. This is not right. I think I have an X for that. This is not right. <clears throat> what we have to do is quote this range. These are functions of this, and this we are always um, improving on. Um, it is much safer, much more conservative and scientific to quote the full 95% range. We don't try to isolate individual years. Right, so that's sort of radiocarbon. Uh, why do we do Bayesian modeling then? Um, here is uh, some radiocarbon dates from kings and one queen, actually, from Egypt. <clears throat> and I'll take these to some Egyptologists and say to them, look at this, I can date these kings and queens, and I get the right ages to back in the new kingdom here. And they'll go, Mike, we already knew those dates. They're here. And uh, <clears throat> the archaeologists, the Egyptologists like to quote individual years, and uh, there's just no chance that that's absolutely right. But that's what they like to do. And so I'll say to them, yes, but I'm a scientist, so I quote uncertainties and ranges. And they go, well, we, we have some uncertainty in our dates. And for the New Kingdom, it's like this. So basically, I, 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 I'm still nowhere. I've got a 400-year range on my radiocarbon date, and they're saying they know the New Kingdom accession dates to, to 10 years. <clears throat> so we have a trick, and it's called um, Bayesian modeling. I think I'd like one day to do a talk about Thomas Bayes. If you have any time whatsoever, look him up on the internet. 
he is going to go down as one of the greatest, uh, well, English scientists there's ever been. A very mysterious guy, um, member of the, I could talk about it a long time, I won't today, but um, he, he defined this theorem, Bayer's theorem, which is just a, a, a method of doing statistics. Um, he called it inverse probability. <clears throat> it was written up and published, actually published after his death, in 1763. And then for 200-something years, nobody did anything with it. Essentially because you, need to have, you, didn't, you needed computing power to do the processing. So we had, over that period, we had what we call now classical statistics. Bayesian statistics sort of took off with computing in the 80s and 90s, moved into archaeology in sort of the 90s. And uh, it's now all through science. It's what powers artificial intelligence, it's what powers um, forecasts of uh, uh, the weather, of climatology and so on, uh, the markets. Um, every time you're on iTunes and you say, you like this particular song, you probably like these songs, that's all driven by um, Bayesian modeling as well. Uh, we, some people think that we're living in the Bayesian revolution at the moment in science. What it essentially means is that we can update, we can improve the probability of our radiocarbon date by taking the actual measurement and then adding to it probability, actually multiplying, uh, probability that we can obtain from other spheres. And the sphere that I work in, of course, is archaeology. It may sound a little abstract, but actually, the more you look at it, uh, the more logical it gets. Here is a document uh, from the Middle Ages, and this is just an example, uh, and each time I put it up, I never remember what document it is, but it doesn't necessarily matter. <clears throat> these are the signatories, uh, and these are the times, the years, that they were in those particular, in office, in those particular uh, uh, roles. We don't know the date of this document, but we have all of these signatories trees on it. So logically, through the process of logic really, you can reduce the date range to that document to somewhere here. See how that, I mean that's common sense. That's all I do with radiocarbon dates. If these are all on the same item, I can reduce the probability range of when that thing, when it actually came from, what year it actually relates to. Another example is ordering, well relative ordering. <clears throat> We'd have these long radiocarbon dates that look a bit like this, and again, uh, in reference to Egypt, they're of little use. Um, but if I know that A is before B is before C, and I tell the computer that, this sort of thing happens. It, the probability moves to the center, particularly actually for the middle ones. It, they get squashed up, because this one has to be before this one and after that. So you get this condensing. By just adding in extra information, you get this condensing of the probability ranges. This is all premised on the fact that the archaeology is right. This would be wrong if that assumption is not correct. So in a, in a case like Egypt where the ordering of the kings is now can't be changed in some places, it's absolutely certain they're not going to apply this. If there's one king who's the father or someone who's the grandfather or another and so on, if they go in a certain order and that's well known, then I can do this. It's dangerous to obviously do it when you're... Um, when that, you shouldn't do it, when that sort of information is not uh, at your disposal. Um, right, so here's the, uh, the uh, history of Egypt uh, all the way through. <clears throat> what I'm going to be talking about today is uh, these bits down here. 
the Neolithic, the pre-dynastic, early dynastic in the Old Kingdom. So this period is what I'm calling the first e Egyptian state. Some of these titles, the Old Kingdom, Middle, Middle Kingdom, and so on, <coughs> are just modern historical titles for um, these periods of Egypt. They actually didn't mean anything to the Egyptians. But this is a United State at this point. This is when Egypt forms. And these are the first six dynasties, and it collapses here. This is me in Egypt um, a couple of years ago, uh, no, last year. <coughs> but it's not really important. I actually can't see the top here. It's a bit of a pity, but uh, um, what this is, is that exact relative information I was just talking about. The Egyptians kept, kept records of the ordering of their kings. And this, these are um, names of kings in little cartouches and oval um, inscriptions here. Uh, in the Temple of Seti I in, um, at Abydos, uh, there's a list of all of the predecessors of the particular kings here of the New Kingdom. It's quite an impressive thing. This and other, what they call king lists, <clears throat> we can draw upon, uh, well, have been drawn upon, for the cre creation of the historical uh, record for Egypt. <clears throat> and some of that, portions of that, particularly when the state was united, are so secure that I can tap into it and use it in my uh, mathematical models. Okay, so what have I done on uh, early Egypt? Um, this was a project I came up with a few years ago um, with these two gentlemen. Um, I read David Wengrow's book. I don't know if anyone knows David Wengrow. This is, uh, he's a professor at uh, UCL. Um, and he writes about social theory. And his book was on the formation of the Egyptian state. And when I met him, I was really impressed with the book, but it was complicated. I mean, he was using language like this. <clears throat> it says, the possibility of an alternative formulation, a routinization of charisma, based on the manufacture of a charismatic body that is coextensive to the socially habitable world. So as you can see, he makes up words, <laughs> talks nonsense, but, and sometimes, somehow or other, he managed to work it together and make it convincing. Um, and it was nice, because I was able to introduce him to my, my boss, who speaks like this, this sort of language. <laughs> so you've got two ends of this sort of academic world in, 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 joining in the same project, a real social theorist and a nuclear physicist. Um, and we wanted to study the period of the formation of Egypt. We wanted to nail it down, um, the chronology of it. And why did we want to do this? Because, for lots of reasons apart from the fact that Egypt is interesting, at this time, Egypt uh, develops writing, uh, and it's still not yet determined whether writing developed in Egypt first or in uh, Mesopotamia. So this is just an interest... Uh, it's interesting to know uh, where it originated and when uh, for models of how it diffused from there, and so on. Uh, so in its own right, the origins of writing is a subject uh, worth studying. The Egyptians developed kingship at this time. That became, of course, incredibly important for them uh, for the rest of their civilization. And Egypt is different from most every other early society in that it was a territorial state. In, in Mesopotamia and elsewhere, in most places, actually, you've got a city developing and then the sort of hinterland being controlled by the city and a state develop, developing that way, a uh, city-state, really, and a city-state merging later on. In Egypt, from the begin very beginning, you were Egyptian if you were 
in a certain at a certain place on the land, up to that tree, up to that river, up to that coast, you were Egyptian in that area. And the way that we think of uh, countries today, uh, Egypt had borders, so it was the origin of uh, what we might call nations now. So for all those reasons, we um, we wanted to improve on this, and this is the was the uh, chronology of Egypt as it was known before our project. We had uh, a Neolithic, or it's called the Bedarian, really, in Egypt, <coughs> in the uh, fifth millennium here up to 4000 BC, uh, and the state forming at 3000 BC. And as you can see, there are obviously approximate numbers that these things didn't happen on exact millennia. So, uh, and then the first dynasty in here. We knew there was something to be done on this <coughs> and to be investigated, so we went about radio carbon dating it. That um, chronology has been built up from uh, seriation and cultural ordering, uh, artifact typologies, like for example these go in, in this order, and these famous wavy handled pots from when uh, Flinders Petrie developed uh, the first real sort of seriation. Uh, it all comes from the pre-dynastic period in Egypt, and that's how they developed this chronology of how the state was formed. And so they've got this long chronology like this, and they've divvied it all up, this is a few years ago before we started, into all these different um, uh, phases, based mostly on ceramics. Um, changes in ceramics over this period, which they thought to last about a millennium. Uh, when we looked at this more closely, we decided even they uh, were more were happier with it being simplified into these sorts of groups, where you had a stage 1A to 1B at the start, and that was definitely before this stage 1C to 2B, and so on. So these were four or five categories which the Egyptologists were absolutely certain were in that order, and they pretty much covered that range. So that's what we started with. Uh, we went to do some radiocarbon dating, and we took samples from all of these different phases, and we radiocarbon dated them. These are the sorts of things we used. Um, this was a good one from the Ashmolean in Oxford. He dug into this pot here, just under the dirt. And it was like fat, like fat, like he'd been cooking last week. This really rubbery stuff. And this <coughs> took it up, dated it. It's like 5,000 years old. Absolutely amazing. And here, uh, hair we find preserves really well in Egypt. Not so much bone, uh, but we mostly concentrated on. Uh, uh, plant material, textiles and things. So these are the results. Um, David wrote a paper for Antiquity on what um, what we found about the Bedarian. So I'm going to work through in time up to the state. What we found about the Neolithic. <clears throat> and these are all the sites. There were sites that had been dated around uh, Khartoum in the central Sudan. Um, and sites further up in sort of Middle Egypt, <clears throat> we did a few more dates in between. And a sort of an anal analysis of them, there was no real way we could relatively order uh, this, th these data sets from all of these sites in Nubia and the Eastern Desert, Western Desert, and actually this one above that, sorry, that's in, um, in uh, Egypt. But what was striking to us when we did this analysis of all the dates, and these are kind of averages from all of these sites, was how consistent they all were 
Um, when you looked at the archaeology in all these locations, they had very similar archaeology, all the way from Khartoum right up to Middle Egypt. It's, it's a long way, it's like a thousand kilometers. Um, and the dates all came from the same sort of period, uh, the fifth millennium. So David wrote a paper not actually distinguishing what was going on in the um, Neolithic in Egypt, basically saying how similar it was. Um, what we did find is that the Neolithic in Egypt, we found, didn't end at around 4000 BC, but went a little bit later. And I'll carry on with that in just a sec. We then tried to analyze some of the most important sites of the pre-dynastic period in Egypt, uh, with all these ceramic phases you probably don't see, but these are the uh, transitions between these different ceramic phases. The idea was that I would find a, a particular transition in one location, and the same transition in another location, and then I'd see which direction it had all gone in, so we could build up this web of how the state formed. It didn't really work because um, the dates we got were just too broad. We couldn't get the precision, but we generally couldn't get the precision necessary to make those sorts of inferences. So what I did was, I, in the end, I just, I just averaged. I combined the dates we had for the Neolithic from the, uh, the pre-Dynastic for the different sites, and so we got the, the purple ones here, the sort of averages, the trend, this important transition here, this one here, and this one here. All of this is coming together. So you've got the Neolithic, now we've got the pre-dynastic, we've got that radiocarbon dated. And I'll just now talk about the first dynasty, and then I'll talk about the whole, what it all means for the whole lot. This is the first dynasty. With the first dynasty, it's more like what we've got later on in Egypt. We have a list of the kings. In fact, this is the names of kings uh, on a mud seal found at Abydos, at the, at the royal tombs at Abydos, and it, it reads that way, but they're, they're in order, chronological order going, going this way. The first kings, well, this is kind of, this is probably the king who established Egypt, really, uh, and this is the first one who took the throne as already um, leader of all of Egypt. <clears throat> the outputs of that model began with a, the first ever scientific date for when uh, this king, Aha, took office. Um, the peak of the distribution was 3085 BC, which actually wasn't all that different from what the historians uh, expected. They were aiming, they were expecting it would be about 3000. So, if anything, it was in pretty good agreement with what people already knew. Um, and that's it at the top again. Oops, it's just off the page. <clears throat> and here it is actually um, on the side. I did various um, forms of this model. <clears throat> these are all when these particular kings of the First Dynasty came to power. And some of them are quite, quite, quite tight, like down to about sort of 30 or 40 years. Um, and I, we did various, um, made various assumptions. And all of the different models we did all stayed in the same place. It's this sort of idea with moving around here between the different things. You can see that this is the origin of the state here. And it doesn't move. No matter if you take out samples that were longer lived, if you only concentrate on... Um, I mean, one of the, this one here, I, what I did was I assumed all of the kings hadn't lived more than 100 years, which I think is a pretty fair assumption. Um, and... No matter what you were doing to the model, it was staying in the same place. So we were very confident that we had this first scientific date for the formation of Egypt and that it was good. Another thing we were able to do was subtract the difference between one king and the king before and work out how long that was in time. Uh, and we got a one anomaly up here. 
where we had a king who supposedly was in power for 80 years. So when I talked to the Egyptologists about that, they weren't so happy. Um, but at the same time, I asked them, is it possible you, you believe that Jair reigned for at least 50 years, or 40, 50 years? Um, he, when he died, there were 318 people sacrificed uh, at the same time as the king. It's an enormous monument at Abydos. He was an incredibly powerful person. <clears throat> is 80 years too long? Maybe it is. But is it possible that after his death, there was a, either a period of um, uh, where there was no king, a sort of a hiatus, or maybe there's even a king uh, missing in the record. And then they started to think about that and weren't so upset, really. They, they, they think that, that that is a possibility. So that's kind of a way in which the science can potentially inform uh, the um, archaeology. So the, in summary, this is w what we had before we started. The sort of assumption the first dynasty was 3,000. The assumption the Neolithic finished then, and this is what we got. So people look at it, and some people who don't do chronology think, Christ, three years of work, and you got that. Well, <laughs> maybe so. But um, actually, what's, what's, um, what's, uh, what's interesting is that Condensing the Neolithic down, uh, the, sorry, the pre-dynastic down, has major implications for the formation of the Egyptian state. This here, the, the Neolithic, the Bedarian period, was a period when people in Egypt weren't even living in cities. They were mobile. They weren't even uh, really in, involved in large-scale agriculture. Whereas agriculture had been going on many millennia longer in Southwest Asia uh, and even in Southeast Europe. <clears throat> Somewhere around here, they adopt agriculture. Uh, and you get these, the, all these different phases of uh, ceramic development uh, during the pre-dynastic. And you essentially get a merging of the peoples into a state in the, in the course of just 600 years or so. Um, whereas in Southeast Asia and other places, they had settled agriculture, um, you know, writing um, uh, villages and even cities for, very long, uh, for, for a long, long time, centuries and centuries, if not millennia, before you had anything like a political state. So we think of Egypt now as, as a state that formed very rapidly. Uh, and this is something now that uh, um, one of my co-investigators uh, uh, has written a paper on that's coming out soon in CAJ about rapid transformation, really, in the archaeological record. Rapid state formation. And she always likes me to put up the um, absolute dates, even though these are peaks of distribution, so for uh, scientists, it's not, I mean, this is not 325 three, BC, um, but that's as near as we could get to, um, that's the nearest to the peak of the distribution, uh, and so on. So that was how, what we did to work out, or to improve how, what the archaeologists know about the formation of the first Egyptian state. My current project is on uh, how it all came unstuck about seven or eight hundred years later. This is the chronology a little bit further on, uh, after the early dynastic and, and, and the old kingdom, and as I say, that's an artificial um, distinction between those two periods. It's just one state. <clears throat> you have this long reign of a king called Pepi II, and actually on many of the king lists he's recorded as having reigned, I think, 94 years, um, which probably is not true, but it's a minimum of uh, something like 67 or 68, that's for sure. Um, during his reign, 
what essentially happens, to simplify a very long and complicated story, is that the king loses control of uh, the regions. Um, the bureaucracy grew uh, in um, the, the early Egyptian state. And essentially to combat the growth in the bureaucracy, the king outsources and all, offers a lot more power to the regional governors to look after their areas. Uh, and he doesn't manage to claim back really enough, uh, particularly tax, uh, manpower from the regions and so on, to keep the state centralised. So there's this whole socio-political narrative as to how the king lost control of, uh, of the state and it just falls apart. So there is no need for there to be any other explanation. There is actually no need to invoke any sort of hist uh, climatic uh, effect on the state. But, <clears throat> in saying all that, um, there's always been the spectre of some sort of abrupt climatic event that caused the fall of the old kingdom. And some of it comes from these um, uh, texts in the uh, what's called the first intermediate period between the old and little kingdom. When you find some of these regional governors writing on their um, tombs, I refuse to see anyone die of hunger and gave grain. These sorts of things to say that I combated the famines and the droughts that we had during this period. And I protected my people, whereas other parts of Egypt were struggling and there was potentially um, societal collapse. So these are those um, different criteria that I sort of just went through. Um, <coughs> the king essentially gave too much power to the uh, regions. It's kind of a devolution type question, really. Um, and uh, it, what happened in the end is that the regional titles became uh, essentially independent of the king and hereditary. They just passed them on from father to son. All of this, it began before Pepe II, but it kind of reaches ahead in Pepe II. By the end of his reign, essentially the old kingdom collapses. There's, a, I think, a couple of very short reigns afterwards. So what I can do with radiocarbon dating is I can date, because it's not really very well known when um, Pepe actually took office. I can try and nail that down. And I can look at this um, environmental event, uh, this supposed drought um, and then I can look at whether the drought came before his uh, reign, and also look at where his reign actually was, and decide whether it's even possible that the environmental effect could have contributed to the weakening of the state during this king's reign and the collapse. And so as you can imagine, it's rather topical at the moment, the idea that of abrupt um, climatic change um, really causing great political difficulties. Uh, and perhaps even causing the fall of this first Egyptian state. So that's what I've been investigating. This is uh, um, obviously Africa and Southwest Asia, and these are all um, environmental records from around the region that do show some record of a major climatic or drought, basically, at this time. Say these two, they don't. But all these other red ones do show some sort of a weakening of the Indian Ocean monsoon rains. The water that we get in Egypt, or that the Egyptians lived on, uh, comes here from the Ethiopian highlands. Uh, the, the monsoon rains strike the Ethiopian highlands and fill the lakes here, and then you get the Nile flood, upon which the civilization was based. So the idea, of course, is that if, this, if the monsoon failed, then, then Egypt's really um, vulnerable. 
Why do I need to use radiocarbon dating when there are records of the Nile flood and there have been actually since antiquity? Can't we just um, recalculate how high the flood was during Pepe's reign and so on and do it that way? Well, people have tried to do that, but it's incredibly difficult. Um, with every flood, you got a whole lot of sediment came down the river and was deposited on the, on, on the riverbed, <clears throat> and it also cut away at the sides of the river. And now, when you look back through the sedimentary record, the geoarchaeological record, it is actually really complicated to try and work out how much sort of sediment came down each year, how much the riverbed was cut away if it came down in sort of a big rush, or how much it was filled up, and so on. Um, <clears throat> people have tried to do it, but really it becomes very mathematical, and the uncertainties uh, grow. Uh, with every sort of link in the chain. Um, yeah, I was going to say something else about the, the, the reason we do I think the I, yeah. The other reason, of course, is that the flood information we do have, uh, it tends to be for the early Old Kingdom. This period of most interest, the late Old Kingdom, there aren't any precise uh, Nile flood book records from antiquity. People have tried to look at lake cores, uh, well, uh, the Fayum Depression here, there's a sort of lake just there. <coughs> And, and, and look back through the record here to look for evidence uh, of uh, a failure, essentially, of the flood. Um, and they have also seen in the um, sedimentary record this, the possibility that there was a, um, a, a drought or a, a lowering of the flood level around this time. But the problem is when you date also the, 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 the sedimentary record up in Egypt, you, for a very long and complicated reasons I won't go into now, but the point of it is that the organic remains that um, you find here and your radiocarbon date have mostly originated up here. And when you think back to what I was talking about with the origins of radiocarbon dating, it's when that organism died. The organism died up here, the tree or the leaves or whatever, and got mulched up, ended up into the uh, stream here. And they don't get carried down in one heat. You know, they, get, they sort of get taken to here and taken to here and here. So, the material that comes down with the flood in Egypt in any one year is actually older than the flood, generally speaking. It's, it is a, what they call a, a re um, uh, residence time of the sediment as it comes downstream. So you don't get the right dates if you date the sedimentary record in Egypt itself. So the obvious thing to do then is to date it up at the lakes. And so that's what I'm doing now, and that's the whole premise of my project, is to date the sedimentary record at the Blue Nile catchment, which was responsible for the flood and these three major lakes here. <coughs> There's Tana, Lake Tana, which is uh, <coughs> the source of the Blue Nile. I'm not going to talk about this. All I'm going to say is that they've done already the sedimentary analysis of beneath Lake Tana, and this marker here, they use this sonic uh, boom through the uh, uh, sediment below the lake, and they get reflectors <coughs> that can that show them a hardening of the sediment at particular locations beneath the surface of the lake. <clears throat> and this one here, when they've done the radiocarbon, some radiocarbon dates on that, corresponds to all lots of other signals in the um, uh, magnetic susceptibility and so on they've done on this core. This is all done by uh, Henry Lamb at Brisbane. Um, they think that this um, this uh, geoarchaeological information supports a drought at this time. And the little, the few radiocarbon dates they've done come out, uh, how are we got it on the scale? Yeah, somewhere around the middle, um, 
this turns out to be uh, 2500 BC, basically. So right in the middle of the old kingdom. <clears throat> but they haven't done enough radio carbon dates on it. And actually there's even evidence in the same sedimentary record in the carbon-nitrogen ratios, um, I'm not so certain about the data um, thing, um, but generally speaking, <clears throat> there, is, there are anomalies around this time period in the record that suggest Lake Tana, the source of the Blue Nile, does show some sort of drought event around about either the middle or the end of the Old Kingdom. So this is an um, age-depth model that I've already run on the dates that they've made, um, and... <clears throat> This is the depth. So if I put in this marker here at the depth where all of those signals were seen um, in, the, um, in the magnetic susceptibility and the isotopes and so on, then I can get a um, distribution of the ages of when that thing actually happened and then compare it with my um, uh, record of the old people. So if I just zoom in, well, I'll just skip that one for a sec. This is what that... This one, this is what it looks like at the moment on the dates that we've got. There is a peak <clears throat> estimate of when this climatic event occurred, and at the moment it sort of looks like that. But, as I'm suggesting here, I can do some more dates, and that's what I'm doing at the moment, and they're just simulated at the moment. But even if this is just another five or six dates, um, and I can really tighten up this area here, and try and pin down when this, um, this uh, anomaly in the, uh, in, in the sedimentary record actually occurred. And so I reckon even with those simula uh, simulated dates, I can reduce it sort of like that. And that would be what I wanted, want to do. I want to get the environmental record um, down to about a century or so. This is not where it is at the moment. This is just simulated. Um, but I've got my first dates coming up this week, I think. Um, so soon I'll know where, when this anomaly in the record actually occurred. Now whether or not it is truly a drought, I'll have to talk again with the, um, with the uh, sedimentologists uh, and the geoarchaeologists and, and, and before we write up. Um, if they are 100% certain that the evidence they have is uh, commensurate with a very low lake level and low precipitation, and I've got a nice neat sort of distribution like this, and I've also got something very similar for when Peppy took office, and say Peppy takes office here or we take office here, then, um, then I can write a nice story about whether uh, climate change had a, a direct impact or not on the uh, fall of the Old Kingdom. My, my um, study is troubled a little bit by the fact that the, in the lake records in Ethiopia, um, we don't have any nice plants like this. Um, and so we, we've mostly been dating bulk sediment, which isn't very good for radiocarbon dating. Better are these ones. But uh, one can date pollen. But it's, I mean, that's what the samples are I have on the AMS at the moment. Um, they're pollen samples, uh, and they're really, really small. So hopefully um, I'll be able to get enough uh, material to get that um, distribution nice and tight uh, and get a nice estimate for when this uh, event actually took place. But at present, I don't yet have those results, so I can't really say. There's a, actually, a, this is a, a view of uh, one of my cores, and this is what I was after, this pollen stuff here. But it's in amongst all this other um, plant material. It doesn't really matter. This is nice, neat plant material taken out of, the, uh, out of the core at this depth. This is what I've separated out, and this is what I've dated um, at the lake at the time of this event.
but as yet, um, it hasn't, uh, you know, I haven't uh, um, got to any great conclusions about it. So in terms of the whole talk then, the rise and fall of Egypt uh, from radiocarbon dating, the main conclusion about the, the, the uh, formation of Egypt is that we've developed a time scale which is much quicker than people thought previously. Uh, it's entirely different from Mesopotamia, and that I think is even nicer sort of conclusion. Uh, rather than thinking of state formation as being a thing that occurs on a sort of linear trajectory through settlement, through agriculture, through cities, that this isn't what happened in Egypt. It was quite an abrupt and sudden change uh, along a different pathway. Uh, that's informed the various papers that are coming out soon from the archaeologists that I believe. Um, I didn't talk so much about how um, the archaeological, the dates we've got made a lot of sense in some cases with the archaeological evidence that people were getting that nobody had really sort of um, gone into in much detail. For example, our first dynasty dates, um, we had long reigns for kings that turned out to be very important kings in the record. And we got very, very short reigns uh, just from the maths of the, of the results. For kings, when you look at their monuments, they're very small and they're very quickly put up and they're not very professionally done. So when you talk to the archaeologists and you say, we believe this king reigned for a lot longer than this one, they more often than not sort of say, well, that makes a lot of sense to us when we look at the record as well. So it was nice that our uh, radiocarbon dates were able to match up pretty well with the archaeological evidence. And just as I was saying, the uh, role of um, climate in the fall of the Old Kingdom is something that I'm working on at the moment, but haven't yet got to the conclusion. Thank you very much.